Amen, church. Good morning. What a joy it is to be a part of a singing church. I, I love to serve you all as we uh, do music together. I'm so thankful for the musicians that we have. My name is John Ross. I am the assistant pastor here, and typically I'm the guy leading worship. So thanks to Candler for handling that today and for our music team. What a joy it is to be with you to preach God's word today. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going, that's on page 982 if you're using one of the Bibles provided. Philippians 4, verses uh, 10 through 9. Sorry about that. Philippians 4, t- 2 through 9. <laughs> Getting tongue-tied already. Here we go. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. Uh, as you do so, let me say that this is the final sermon in our series in the book of Philippians. Um, And as we said at the start, we haven't been able to cover every aspect of this book. Our aim has been to uh, reference those sections that deal with joy. And even so, we haven't been able to cover everything concerning joy in the book of Philippians. But I do hope this has been beneficial to you um, in this time. Next week, author, theologian, and pastor Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church will be here preaching for us as we celebrate the Lord's work through Bert, our lead pastor, in over 20 years of pastoral ministry. So come back for that as well, and then Bert will return to the pulpit two weeks from now. To our passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintik to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our greatest joy. We pray that you would send your light and your truth, that they would lead us to your throne. Oh Lord, help us to worship you in all of our days and in all of our ways. May we be a people who practice peace and a people who are known for joy. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So as you might be able to tell from the page you're looking at, Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippians. Having provided a number of concepts earlier in the letter, he now gives the church some 
instructions that are natural implications of his teaching. And as we wrap our time up in this letter considering joy in the Lord, we also find a word that accompanies joy, and that's the word peace. Peace is more than just a greeting amongst hippies. It's more than just a hopeful wish by pacifists and beauty pageant contestants. True peace is a spiritual state of rest in God. And that spiritual state of rest in God works its way outward into our lives. In order to know true peace, you must know the God of peace and be centered on Him. Similarly, we've looked at joy before, but joy is not a feeling that we experience, but it is a mindset centered on Christ. Now, the feelings of joy that that accompany it, like gladness, are certainly there, but true joy is not based on what we feel or flippantly experienced. Joy is not circumstantial. Gordon Fee writes it this way. He's a theologian and pastor. He says, Christian joy is not the temporal kind which comes and goes with one's circumstances. Rather, it is predicated altogether on one's relationship with the Lord and is thus an abiding deeply spiritual quality of life. Everyone wants to experience joy. Everyone wants to experience peace. And God is on your side in that. He also wants you to experience joy and peace. But how do we get there? How do we get to joy? How do we get to a state of peace, that spiritual state of rest in God? What practical steps can we take to be a more joyful people? Well, you may be surprised to learn that peace is practiced. Peace is a deliberate habit and not a happenstance. Like joy, peace is not based on circumstances, but on the posture of your heart. The good news is that in Christ... You and I no longer have to be slaves to self or to the emotional turbulence that accompanies our lives at times. We can actively cultivate peace and we will thereby be better equipped to rejoice in the Lord. I would say that peace practically pursued encourages joy. And we're going to look at this section of Philippians in four parts And just like a good Baptist, they all start with the same letter. Y'all ready? Reconcile, rejoice, rest, remember. Reconcile, rejoice, rest, remember. First, we see that we are encouraged to reconcile with one another. Now, one of Paul's ongoing themes throughout the letter of Philippians is the theme of unity. In previous sermons, we've considered how unity and joy are related, as Paul encouraged the church to complete his joy by being like-minded. One of the greatest enemies of joy and peace is interpersonal conflict, and I'm sure you've experienced this. If you've ever had a fight with someone you love, you know that the deeper the love and affection go, the deeper the trust goes, 
the hurt and the pain of conflict go deeper as well. Additionally, if you've ever had friends in a conflict, you'll know how awkward and disheartening it can be to see two people that you love simply not talking to each other. And this is the situation that Paul finds himself in. There are two women in the Philippian church whom Paul knows as friends and co-workers in the gospel. He's worked alongside them. And they've had some kind of disagreement. And we aren't told the content of the disagreement. And I think that's intentional because this is not the point of what Paul is getting at. We can assume it doesn't have anything to do with the integrity of the gospel because Paul considers the existence of the argument itself a compromise of the gospel. We aren't told the content, and this is why. Let me give an example. This is clearer and probably more petty than most of us will experience. But let's say there's a church that can't agree on the color of the carpet, and so they split. That is a disagreement that is a compromise to the gospel itself because those people are not loving each other well. They are not unified. They are not known for their love for each other. They're known for their love for their preferences. Now, their disagreement was probably not that petty. We don't know what it is. But it's not the content of Yodia and Sintiq's disagreement, whatever it may be, because it pales in comparison to the content of the gospel. The gospel that unites Yodia and Sintiq is of far greater worth than anything that would divide them. Let's dive a little deeper and consider the text in front of us. Verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintiq to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, you'd expect Paul here to weigh in, to pick sides. He is a brilliant theologian. He's a brilliant strategist. And yet, he doesn't. Paul certainly would have known what they were arguing about. We see in other texts that Paul regularly weighs in on practical matters of theology and life in the church. But here, he does not pick sides. But that's what we're expected to do, right? We're supposed to pick sides. We're supposed to hear two people, make their case, and then decide for ourselves what that result should be. And sometimes we'll make a long comment post about it. Paul knows what's going on, but he doesn't pick sides. He simply addresses both parties calmly and equally. Do you see that in the text? I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintik to agree in the Lord. He doesn't say, I entreat Yodia to stop being such a drama queen and grow up. He doesn't say, I entreat Sintik to cancel Yodia because she is so toxic and I just can't even. <laughs> Listen, Yodia and Sintik are equally addressed because they are equally responsible for this conflict. They are equally capable of ending it, of squashing it. Now, you might be asking, how is that fair? How is that fair of Paul to treat both of them the same? Somebody has to be, right? Well, friends, the gospel 
doesn't have a whole lot to do with fairness. Justice, certainly, but fairness really isn't at play. You don't want fairness. Fairness would mean that you are paying for your sins yourself. Fairness means that justice occurs when you are sent to hell. You don't want eternal hell and separation. You want grace. You want mercy. Fairness would mean God gives you what you earned. The wages of sin is death. You would get no grace, no mercy, no love if things were fair. No, Paul is not concerned with fairness. Paul is concerned about uniting these women in the Lord who proclaim a gospel of grace and mercy and yet won't have grace and mercy with each other. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses other believers who are taking each other to court. They're suing each other. They're so mad at each other. And in chapter 6, verse 7, he says this, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If you are in an argument with a fellow Christian, why not suffer wrong? Seriously, why not just suffer wrong? Christ suffered wrong for you. That's the heart of the gospel, friends. Christian, you, can you really withhold forgiveness after being forgiven so much in Christ? Can you really be united with Christ and divided with a brother or sister in Christ who was equally won by his shed blood? I entreat you, be reconciled with your brother or sister in Christ. Do it for your family. Do it for your church. Do it for the kingdom. Do it for the glory of Christ. But also... Do it for joy. Do it for joy. With Christ's likeness comes joy. With Christ's likeness comes freedom. Stop being so uptight about being dishonored. Stop the pity parties. Stop focusing on how you aren't treated fairly. Do you know who suffered dishonor and shame, false accusations, Physical torment, our Lord and Savior, whom we are called to follow and be like. Do you know who had really bad friends? Jesus. And he loved them dearly. Christ's honor and worth and value was not found in any of those things. It was found in heaven. And that's where our honor is found. We have been honored by Christ he has chosen us to be vessels for his glory. Would you rather win an argument? Or whether, would you rather win your friend back in the Lord? Friends, be reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. As we move on, it shouldn't be missed that Paul not only calls on Yodia and Sintiq to agree, but he calls on others to help them agree. Now, there are multiple layers of this, okay? Call it community action. First, note that Paul himself is entreating them, right? Paul is not a part of the Philippian church, but he knows them intimately. He's close friends with these women, and they are his co-workers. 
Second, Paul addresses the recipient and asks for his help. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Third, he appeals to their work together in the gospel and the book of life. It is the gospel that unifies and provides a foundation for our unity, and their ultimate identity is found in heaven, not in being right or wrong. Fourth, he pulls Clement in by name, which I'm sure Clement appreciated, and other workers. He's appealing to a broad base of people involved in gospel ministry. He's asking for help, naming people by name. Get involved. Help Yodia and Sintiq be reconciled. Fifth, implied in all of this is that this letter was going to be read before the church. And you can imagine the squirming that must have occurred in the seats as Paul's true companion read aloud in front of the entire congregation, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sinti to agree in the Lord. A couple of applications here on reconcile. If you know of a feud within your church or between Christians that you know personally, not just out there on the interwebs, you know them, address the conflict and do so in love. Don't sit on the sidelines and root for the person that you think is right. It's not up to you to pick sides. It's up to you to help reconcile. Entreat both to agree in the Lord. If you are personally feuding with another Christian, this is the second point, if you are feuding with another Christian, don't be alarmed or upset when another Christian encourages you to resolve the matter and be reconciled. The text calls us to that, to be faithful to the Lord by doing so. And in doing so, know that your brother or your sister in Christ wants you to experience joy. They are for you and not against you. Addressing conflict isn't fun for anyone. That person is entering into an uncomfortable situation to try to pull you out, to be reconciled, to be pulled out of the sin of pride. Be gracious, be reconciled. Reconciling with one another is a practical matter of peace that will lead us to greater joy in Christ. And not only are we to reconcile with one another, but we are also to rejoice We are to rejoice in the Lord. As if it weren't clear enough through the entirety of the letter of Philippians, Paul commands the church here plainly, clearly, succinctly, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that weren't clear enough, he's going to say it again. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is not an option. It's not a suggestion. Not try your best to rejoice. Not rejoice in the Lord as often as possible. It's rejoice in the Lord always. We are commanded to rejoice simply because we're not really inclined to rejoice. We're inclined to despair. It takes no great skill to think that your life is terrible. We can all find things that we don't like, but it's harder, it's a discipline to rejoice. And remember, Paul himself is no stranger to trouble. Paul is speaking not as some otherworldly angel 
who does not experience sorrow or pain. Paul comes to us as a veteran of sorrow. Maybe you felt like Paul when in 2 Corinthians 1.8 he says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's despair. That's sorrow. Or consider this testimony from Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knows sorrow. Paul knows anxiety. He knows agony. But he also knows a sufficient Savior. And because he has been bought with a price and forgiven all his iniquity, Paul chooses to rejoice even as he writes this letter from prison. This is not a generic rejoicing. It is a rejoicing in the Lord. He's directing his joy Godward. Author, pastor, theologian John Piper is well known for coining this phrase, and that is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Rejoicing in the Lord is right and good because you were made for that. You were created to do that. You were designed to do so. As many catechisms state, your purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you find yourself frustrated with life and with other people regularly, perhaps it's because you aren't filling your purpose and rejoicing in the Lord always. You're like a hammer trying to drive a screw into a piece of wood. It's not going to work and you're just going to be frustrated. You weren't made for that. You were made to find satisfaction in God alone. And oh friends, in the Lord, there is much to be thankful for. And this is not just a command to rejoice, not just a command to rejoice in the Lord, but to rejoice in the Lord always. Trouble and grief will most certainly come. But friends, can you look back on your life and ever say to yourself, I really regret rejoicing in the Lord that time. Or, I'm really glad that I didn't rejoice in the Lord. I'm glad that I was sour and bitter that whole season. It was great. It's perfect. Failing to rejoice is never good for your soul. Tell yourself that now and often as you experience pain and suffering and disappointment, hardship. Because we'll experience these things, we must align ourselves with the reality of Christ and his cross, that Christ suffered and died for us and that we are free in him. We should rejoice in the Lord always. 
And I'll say it again. Rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord is to be at peace. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength will be invigorated, enlivened, and strengthened by rejoicing in the Lord. That's why we gather here every Sunday to do so. We need to make a regular habit of doing that with the church. It is a discipline to be practiced, to be mastered. Rejoicing in the Lord, it will take time. It will take discipline. Another way that we can practically find rest and peace for our souls and encourage joy within our own hearts is to rest. And this is a twofold rest. Look at verses 5 through 7. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Of this twofold rest, let's first consider this word reasonableness. It's not a word we say often, and that's because they're trying to come up with a word that works well from the original Greek. Other translations will say words like gentleness, let your gentleness be known to everyone, graciousness, leniency, moderation. And the idea is that as a person, you're level-headed, you keep your cool, you're temperate in your reactions. You're not known to exaggerate, manipulate, or explode amidst whatever circumstances may cross your path. When someone insults you, you don't immediately return the favor. When a friend disappoints you, you're not quick to tell the world his or her faults. And you're not always in a state of despair or rage or frustration. Consider that in the letter to the Galatian church, Paul states the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are opposed to each other. Chapter 5, verse 19 now, this, now, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident, and I'm going to skip a few, but they include such divisive sins as the following, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. All of those are disunifying sins. Contrast that with the calmer and level-headed fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can you hear how that fruit of the Spirit lends itself to somebody who is level-headed, who is reasonable as this word is, used, is being used. And not only that, but this reasonableness, this level-headedness is to be known by all. Now, each of us are known by different or varying groups of people in our life. You have the neighbor self. Your neighbors know you a certain way. You have the workplace self where your coworkers know you a certain way. 
So on it goes for family, for close friends, for fellow coffee shop patrons, for playdate groups, or for Bible studies. And if we're honest, one of those groups probably sees us in a different light than the others, and not in a good way. Somebody knows you at your weakest. Maybe you're kind and gentle at home, but you're hot-headed at the office. Maybe that's reversed. Maybe you're a gracious host for clients and customers or patients, but you are an impatient neighbor and you can't stand those who live around you. Rather than give yourself a pass, friends, let your reasonableness be known by all. By your annoying neighbor who yells drunken obscenities at 2 a.m., by the child who knows how to push all your buttons and does so on purpose, or by the boss who treats you unfairly. Find your peace and your joy in serving the Lord, knowing that your worth and your identity rest securely in Him, and let your reasonableness be known by all. We are called to this kind of moderation because the Lord is at hand. He is near to all who call on him. He is not distant. He's not confused by your circumstances. He's not absent. He's not wringing his hands about your situation. He's not watching from the sidelines. The Lord is near. There is no reason to let your fears run wild. I said earlier this rest is twofold. It's marked by reasonableness, and this rest is also marked by prayer. Paul goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In our day and country, it seems that anxiety is simply an acceptable sin. Everybody's anxious, and so we assume that that is fine. And if we're being real, some of us are getting anxious about talking about being anxious. When we are anxious, it could be said that we are trying to fill the vacuum of our own ignorance with an alternate reality of our own making. Have you ever been there? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the situation is. And so you come up in your mind with imaginary scenarios about what's going to happen. So, I mean, get this. Instead of trusting in the sovereign Lord, who knows all, sees all, is powerful over all, and trusting in his promises, we're instead trusting our imaginations. It doesn't make much sense, but that's what we do. And that leads to anxiety. Jesus, in Matthew 6, 25 and 27, he says, Do not be anxious about your life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the point he's making is this. Being anxious is not of benefit to you. Often, anxiety is the byproduct of thinking one of the three things or assuming one of three things that just simply are not true. Assuming that God is not good. Assuming that God is not in control. Assuming that God doesn't care for me or some combination of those three. 
Christian, the Lord has been gracious to you for a long time. He's been gracious to his church, to his people for centuries. He will not cease to be faithful to you tomorrow. Therefore, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray to God. Consider some of these assurances from God's word, and I'm going to list these out pretty quickly. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 8, we read this this morning. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Finally, Romans 8, 28, which many of you know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, instead of filling your mind with imaginary scenarios and anxious thoughts. Fill your mind with these promises and be anxious for nothing. Jesus has overcome the world. He has paid for your transgressions and you are free in Christ. Now, if God is good, if God is in control, if God cares for me, put all that together, the solution makes total sense. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If I don't know the future, I can go to the one who does. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Paul tells the church, Rejoice always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So rather than be anxious and live in fear of the future, pray and trust the one who holds the future. Rather than worry about what you don't know, pray and trust in the God who knows all. Now that word supplication, what does that mean? Well, it simply means to ask humbly. Humbly ask the Father to help. Ask him to move. Speak to him as a father, for in Christ you are a cherished son or daughter. And remember, the Lord is at hand. He is near you. What is the result of praying and letting your request be made known to God? We see here in the text, the result is peace. The peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That word guard is a, a word that means garrison. So like a troop guarding a fortress, God's peace will guard your heart and mind. What a remarkable gift, simply by turning to him in prayer. If you don't want that, just keep not praying. Just 
good course of action, that that's what you want. Prayer is an exercise that God uses to secure peace in our hearts as we call out to Him for help, thanking Him for the good gifts that we've been given, trusting that He will continue to be good. So, Paul has encouraged us to practice peace through reconciliation, to practice peace by rejoicing in the Lord, and to practice peace through resting in Him. How can we praise God with our thoughts when we are not anxious? Next, we'll consider that we should remember, and this is also twofold. Remember, first we remember the Lord and His kindness. Look there in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, it's probably not news to you that we serve a God who has created a wonderful world, a world that we can live in and rejoice in and thrive in. And it's good to enjoy God's good gifts. He created this world for His own glory and that you might enjoy it. But what a tragedy that we are often so focused on ourselves or so worried about the future that we fail to see the good gifts that are all around us every day. God's Word encourages us to meditate on that which is good. Christian meditation is a filling of the mind rather than an emptying of the mind. This world, your life, is filled with so much to rejoice in that Paul just says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now consider just for a moment a few meditations on God's goodness. And in doing so, I want to give you maybe just a little bit of a template of how you can rejoice in the Lord in everyday things. Think about God's goodness. Bare feet sinking ever so slightly into wet sand as the tide inches just over your toes. The sound of rain on a day off as you lay down to take a nap. A holiday meal shared with friends and family where you're too full for dessert, so you just talk for two hours and then you have dessert. The tearful embrace of a spouse or a friend praying with you through a dark season. The delicate layered folds of a rose about to bloom. The gentle weight of a baby falling asleep on your chest. Or how about the simple joy of putting on clothes that are still warm from the dryer? God is so full of goodness towards you that you must live an entire lifetime in order to experience it. And then, praise the Lord, we will be with Him in eternity to experience it in eternity. Isn't God good to give us such gifts? Doesn't he deserve glory from us for that? Isn't it good to know that the Lord wants you to think about these things, to not feel any kind of conviction about enjoying them, because if you are enjoying him 
church, enjoying them for his glory, then that is what you are supposed to do. What if in these good objects, these good moments, we more regularly directed our thoughts and our praise and our wonder and our amazement toward God? Rather than saying, this pad thai is amazing, you can say, praise the Lord for pad thai. If we fill our minds with worship as we think about these things, there won't be much room for anxiety to creep in because we've considered God's goodness to such a degree that any of the smaller things that might worry us are crowded out by the blessings of God that are there. By developing a simple habit of turning your thoughts toward God in everyday situations, you'll be worshiping throughout the week. You can do this as you take a quiet walk in the morning. You can do this during a date night meal with your spouse. You can do this with bedtime stories with your little ones. You can do this with a late night hang with good friends. In your heart and your mind, perhaps even out loud, say, Lord, you are good, and this is a good gift. Thank you. We have to be reminded to do this because often we choose to think of everything that is wrong with the world rather than the things that are good and right. Our minds can easily become overwhelmed by thoughts of tragedy or despair, injustice, and so on. The news and your social media news feed are based on these things, on conflict. And we don't have to pretend like these things don't exist, but we are commanded to look at the world from the perspective of God's goodness. Sometimes when I meditate on Scripture, I'll create what I call a reverse verse, or maybe a bizarro verse, if you will. In doing so, I'm, what I'm trying to do as I think about the passage is to get a sense of what the opposite course of action would be. Here's what Scripture tells me to do, what would be the reverse of that. So here's my reverse verse, okay? Finally, brothers, whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly, whatever is deplorable, if there is any failure, if there is anything worthy of scorn, think about these things. Now, as I read that, does that sound like anything you've read or watched on TV lately? Maybe a podcast you've listened to, a post that you've written or read. Does that sound like a conversation you might have with other people about the shortcomings of others or how bad XYZ is? And my question is this, what are you meditating on? What are you filling your mind with? To be fair, we can't know what is excellent without some comparison to what is not excellent. We should expose sin. We should acknowledge injustice. We should plead the widow's cause. But there's a difference between knowing and acknowledging what is broken and meditating endlessly on the sins of others and the brokenness of our world. Scripture calls us to meditate on what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Meditating on sinfulness, meditating on brokenness, leads to despair and anger and fear and futility and blame and frustration. In short, it robs you of joy. It robs you of peace. 
Scripture calls us to fill our minds with something else, with the goodness of the Lord. When you forget the grace and mercy that you received in Christ, when you fail to rejoice in the Lord and you fill your mind with all these ugly things, you're basically demanding that other people pay attention to your anxieties. You're pulling them into the things that you are anxious about, the things that are out of your control. And that will exhaust you and it will exhaust those around you. If we are to be ambassadors of joy, which we have so much to be joyful and thankful about in the gospel of Christ, then we need to abandon these thought patterns of filling our minds with ugliness. Remember, I said this was twofold. Finally, and this is short, remember saints like Paul. Here in verse 9, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we don't need to spend much time here because we've already been considering the life of Paul as we've preached through Philippians and as we've looked at our text today. But I want to say this. One of the many, many blessings of Christian community, of being committed to a church body, is learning from those who are more mature than we are through mentoring and discipling relationships through reading helpful books or Christian biographies of saints that have gone before us, through coffee or lunch with a friend who is just maybe stronger in a particular spiritual discipline than we are. We can reap the benefits of their strength. And not to be neglected, to learn from Paul, to practice the things that we are being taught in Scripture. Friends, if you hear nothing else I've said, I want you to hear this. The Lord wants you to experience joy and peace in Him. He wants that for you. He wants that for your heart and for your mind. He wants that for your life. But ultimate joy, ultimate peace can only be found in the Lord. That which is most excellent and most worthy of our praise, our thoughts, our meditation, is the Lord Himself. Christ walked the earth, he enjoyed creation, and rejoiced in his Father perfectly despite hardship. We may fail to do so, but we can rejoice in Christ knowing that his righteousness has become our own through the cross. And that's something else to rejoice in. Our hope is not in perfect execution of the truths that we've preached through the book of Philippians, our righteousness is not found on how joyful we are. But friends, your life will be bettered by rejoicing in the Lord. We thank the Lord for his perfect righteousness given to us when we trust in him. And that brings us peace and joy in the Lord. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Philippians, for the joy that we can have in Christ. We know that he suffered for our pardon, for the joy that was set before him. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a disciplined people, that we might do what is right and good and fitting, to be a people who exist in a state of spiritual peace with you, 
May we turn to you in prayer. May we reconcile with one another. May we meditate on your goodness and on your grace. May we we rejoice in you always. Help us, Lord, to do that. We confess that so often we struggle to do just that. Help us to rejoice now as we sing and worship you together as a church family. It's in Jesus' name we pray.